Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your other host, Harless. This is the podcast where we recap magic story with a little bit of our own flavor text thrown in. Today is episode 10, the finale of season two, which follows the Brothers War. Join us as we head into the multiverse. so excited for this episode. This has been a long road coming. Everything in the Brothers War leads up to this final moment. Are we going to find out if Teferi succeeds in unlocking the secrets of the Silex? And what about our planeswalkers in Urza's Tower? Are they okay after the Phyrexian attack? What about Joda? Oh, Joda. We left off with a cliffhanger. So if you remember, throughout the Brothers War, we have been following two tracks. Track one, taking place thousands of years into the past on Dominaria during an event called the Brothers War. And track two in the current age, also on Dominaria, that follows our merry band of planeswalkers as they defend Urza's tower against the Phyrexians. Last time, our friend Elspeth, a powerful planeswalker, had led the defense against the first wave of Phyrexians that besieged Urza's tower. There was a skyship and an enormous wave of attacking Phyrexians. But with the help of Joda, Elspeth and the other planeswalkers managed to fend them off but not without tragedy. Joda was hurt pretty badly by Rona. He was bleeding out at the end of the last episode, on the verge of death. Elspeth could save him with a substance called Halo, but we are unsure if she got to him in time and things looked pretty bad. Yeah, let's also not forget that Tezzeret was here too, and he just so happened to call off the attack momentarily to spare Elspeth's life. Why? We don't really know, but we can guess Tezzeret is definitely up to something. He doesn't like his Phyrexian overlord, Elish Norn. He's causing disarray within the ranks of the Phyrexians, which I personally think is really interesting. And all the while, Teferi is stuck in the Temporal Anchor, the time machine Sahili built. He's searching fruitlessly for the secret to operating the Silex, a powerful ancient artifact that they believe is the key to destroying the Phyrexians. So let's head back in time, one more time, to meet up with Teferi in his search for Urza and the Silex in the cataclysmic event of the Brothers' War. So the name of this episode is called As Cruel As Necessary by Miguel Lopez. And for this entire episode, we are going to follow Teferi, our time-traveling planeswalker. He's been skirting around in the past for the entirety of this season, trying and failing to find the correct time and place for when Urza unleashed the Silex during the Brothers' War. And it's really difficult to find the Brothers' War in this moment in time. And the way that Teferi describes it is that if time was a canvas, then death were the holes in this canvas. And the Brothers' War was so full of death and different events taking place that cause different outcomes in the future, that trying to navigate this was kind of like, they used the analogy, Kaya and Teferi used the analogy over, they have to thread the needle. They have to very carefully find this one moment amidst a black hole of time. So that's why it's so, like, they've been struggling to find this moment that he's, that he's looking for. And Teferi, he's tired. 
He's been doing this for a while now. He's gone back in time multiple times to see if he can find the correct spot in time where he could find Urza, find information on the Silex. He's really strained, and the anchor is clearly taking a toll on him. Yeah, like, I can't imagine. They've they've described where he's constantly being torn from his body. Like, his soul is being torn away from his body every time he goes back in time. So I could imagine that would take a toll on anybody. Yeah, that sounds pretty exhausting. And we're kind of at a pivotal moment at the start of this episode. This is it. No more dabbling or testing. Teferi has one more chance to go back in time. One. That is it. The Phyrexians are literally at the doorstep, and these planeswalkers are out of time, period. Teferi knows this. There's a strong chance that when he goes back into the anchor this time, he may not come back out. So before we dive into this one last trip through the temporal anchor to find this one spot with Urza back in time, I just want to call out the absolute beautiful and poetic prose that was this particular episode. It was an absolute joy to read. Miguel Lopez is a fantastic writer. And a lot of these scenes are literal poetry where we are describing time and existence in just these very small phrases that are just really, really well said and very uh, very profound and very emotional. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this one as well. It was really beautiful. And it was it was very different than, I'll tell you what, it was a refreshing break from the very bleak war scenes that we have been seeing for the past <laughs> couple of episodes of this track. It was just, even though this is, this is definitely like, Fairy's not having a fun time going back in time, but it, it just struck a very different tone in that it's it's just a little bit more colorful and it's a little bit more hopeful in this episode. Just just a tiny little bit. Absolutely. Now, Kaya and Teferi, they spend a lot of time together during this entire experience. I mean, she's helping him. He's separating himself from his body. So he's going in to hit this like ethereal ghostly form. And Kaya is able to have this connection with him um, while he's in the temporal anchor. And Kaya does a lot of comforting Teferi during this moment, which is really beautiful. And while they're talking, Kaya gives Teferi some advice. She tells him to find the deepest dark. And then she goes on to say, time is a tapestry and you are a needle. And he has to, like Natalie said earlier, find that exact thread that that needle needs to go through to create the stitch in time he needs to get where he's going. No pressure. So to quote for you this moment, and this is what Kaya and Teferi were realizing, is that the mission was not the problem. They had their target identified and they knew where to look for the answers. They had power, they had weapons, they had knowledge, and they had allies. Crucially, they had a new Silex. The problem was they didn't know how to use the damn thing. So that's the that's what they're looking for back in time is that they have everything, even the Silex, but they just don't know how to use it. And they know that Urza is the key here. Urza was the one who had unleashed the Silex all of those thousands of years ago, but they don't know how he did it. That's what they're trying to find that one moment. And so some interesting bits of history about the Silex, it's kind of revealed to us here as we're reading through the episode, is that Teferi had done some research with Sahili about the Silex before going into the temporal anchor for the first time. And it's interesting to find out that it's possible that there may have been more than one Silex um, and that there might have been multiple throughout history and what happened to each of them and how each of them were operated kind of is scattered. There's not real clear direction or clear answers to where these Silexes went, what happened to them, and how they operated them. 
So the history is all kinds of chaotic, and that's why they have to literally go back in time in order to find the answer. And therefore, Teferi is kind of on a mad goose chase, and the, the historic records are not giving him any sort of direction. He's kind of having to play a guessing game. The Antiquities War, Teferi said. He slapped the papers on the table and opened them. Here, he said, stabbing a finger on the moldering epic. Urza's wife, Caleb and Krug, wrote this epic chronicling the history of the war she herself bore witness to. There are many versions and translations, but they all end the same way. Urza activated the Silex on Argoth and ended the war. Teferi looked up at Sahili. We go here, the last battle of the Brothers' War. So it's kind of revealed to us throughout this episode and as we get behind Teferi's perspective is that he truly has no idea what he's doing. To the outside, to all the other planeswalkers, he has a plan. He's all knowledgeable about exactly what he's doing. He feels confident about going back in time and using the temporal anchor and he's totally got it. But in reality, it's not at all like that. He's totally lost and is afraid that he's going to fail and afraid that he's not going to find the answer and that he might actually do more harm than good by doing this. Well, there's two things I want us to keep in mind here. One is that all theories about time travel are just that. They're theories. These have never been practiced. He's learning all this as he goes and being cast through the anchor. And honestly, sometimes he wonders if he's dying as opposed to traveling through time. I mean, this is not a fun experience and he doesn't know what's going on. And then the second piece is that while Teferi is a powerful time mage, he has sworn to never do what he's doing. So he has absolutely no reason to have sought out information on how to do so. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, so even if information had existed, he would not have sought it out. He would not have gone looking for it, right? It's not like he would just have that in his zeitgeist of information. Yeah, it's like the rule number one that he followed was don't go into the black holes of time, a.k.a. the Brothers' War. (laughs) It's like the number one rule. Don't do that. So Teferi and the other planeswalkers, including Kaya and Sahili, in this um, room with a temporal anchor, they talk about the last trip through the temporal anchor just as the Phyrexians close in. And this is moments before the events we saw in the last episode and all of those Phyrexians descend upon the tower. So we're just before Elspeth does her epic moment with Joda. Like this is just before that. The, the Phyrexians are just beginning their, their attack. And there's a strong likelihood that if the anchor fails or if the tower is overrun from this invasion, from this Phyrexian attack, Teferi would be trapped in it. Which would essentially mean that his soul would be ripped from his body. Uh, yikes. Yikes, big big yikes, right? Like, this is a moment where Teferi is being very Planeswalker-like, being very heroic, putting himself before others. He is putting himself through tremendous pain and suffering in order to try to find the solution to not ending the multiverse. And this is really what makes Teferi the heroic Planeswalker he is and why the others look up to him so much. So, yeah, there's there's just a ton of pressure going on for for Teferi right now. It's his life is on the line as well as the lives of all of these other planeswalkers. But that's just and who he's Teferi very is. Fatherly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He's fatherly. He is he's taken this like you like you say the band of merry planeswalkers who are under his arm and they're all younger than him. And he really is you know, he he doesn't call himself their leader. You know, he's they're really pushing Elspeth into that place. But 
he really fills that void from the beginning that they get there, you know, regardless of everyone's plan to uh, on how they want to come together. The natural thing that happens is that Teferi kind of becomes the de facto leader. He's the one with the plan. He's the one that's willing to sacrifice the most for it, it seems like. And, you know, we've, we've seen Sahili put in so much work throughout this, uh, this season of trying to get everything together and really pushing herself but and what she's willing to sacrifice. But we also see that Teferi is sacrificing just so much physically, right? Like, like mentally, Sahili sacrificed so much, but physically, Teferi is really putting himself in harm's way over and over and over again in order to try to find this one perfect moment. So Teferi, he finally finds this moment in time, and he sees Urza, and Urza is just sitting there with the Silex, and the Sil- and he's cut his arm and is filling it with blood, and the blood is kind of like seeping into all those etchings and carvings that are in the Silex. And as this is happening, Teferi is just saying out loud what is happening because he knows that Kaya is like in his mind and and he's making sure that honestly he's making sure that if he doesn't make it back that Kaya has the information that she needs and the other planeswalkers have the information that they need because he he doesn't know he doesn't know what's going to be important about what's happening now so he's just kind of telling them everything as it happens he says the blood from the cut on Urza's forearm is dropping into the bowl filling the runes he's sitting cross-legged with the bowl in his lap and i mean he's he's telling every single detail he's talking about how he's sitting and what he's doing exactly and then Mishra appears and i'm just going to read this quote for you the Mishra machine had recovered from the avalanche and was now charging up the hill its dragon head screaming. Urza looked up and saw his brother's face, half torn from the metallic skull beneath, and wept for him. Wait, you said metallic skull? So Misha wasn't human? Question mark? Yeah, so this is where we find out in this storyline, at least, that Misha was Phyrexianized. Oh, you know, that explains so much. That explains so much. Okay, I'll, I'll hold my thoughts until right after the scene. Let's let's talk about what happens here, and 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 then we'll we'll talk about what we what we might think uh, about it because I have thoughts. So in this moment, I just want to call attention to. So Natalie, you picked up on an important thing, but there's another piece that I want to call out, which is that Urza is sitting here weeping. His brother, his brother, like regardless of what my brother could ever do. I would always, I will always love my brother, right? Like there, there's, there's this unbreakable familial bond between siblings sometimes, and it's really hard to break. And you see here that Urza truly, truly cared for Mishra and is horrified at what's happening, but also maybe he's scared, right? Like we're not given insight into Urza's thoughts, but there's also the option that he's crying because he's scared. He thinks that you know, this is going to be the end. Like he's blowing up the world here, essentially. Yeah. I also wonder if it's kind of the moment that Urza realized that his brother might have been gone for much longer than he thought. Yeah. You know, and and he's trying to accept the fact that who he thought was Misha, his brother, wasn't truly his brother. Right. And because we don't know when Misha was Phyrexianized. And so this could have happened a long time ago, and Urza is just now realizing it. It must feel very devastating to realize that not only has he lost his brother, but he might have lost him a long time ago, and he never realized it. Again, like Harless hit on it, we kind of have to read between the lines a little bit of this of this scene because there isn't a lot given. We don't get 
Urza's perspective. We don't get his thoughts. We only get to see these fleeting visions that Teferi is desperately trying to relay back to Kaya through the temporal anchor. And it's just like, it's, it's very jarring and there's only bits and pieces that are given to us. And so again, I'm just, I'm speculating here, but like Harless said, this is a very rare moment where everything we have heard about Urza so far has not been human. Urza has been a cruel and, you know, non-human merciless, merciless, you know, like, like, Having him cry would not be something that I would imagine, but here he is. He is crying in the moment of, you know, with the Silex, he is crying. And there's there's just a, he even, Teferi even reflects that he's so human in, in this yeah. moment. Yeah, he says tears. As, he says through Kaya, right, as he's got this, this um, telepathic bond with her, he says tears, lots of tears. Urza never cried. He's so human here she replied at this point the uh mishra machine is screaming is smiling is coming for urza and at that point there's a flash in the bowl and teferi screams stop and gets out of the temporal anchor and we return momentarily to the tower teferi says it must have something to do with the way the silex runes spiral and the blood perhaps a combination of the two but he's really guessing here because it's all that they have and during this moment kaya she takes a moment to really take care of teferi she makes him eat and rest a bit teferi's in pretty bad shape and honestly so is kaya she says hurry please this is difficult for me as well her usual demeanor her devil may care attitude was gone and we don't see kaya like this very often kaya does not show her emotions kaya puts on a mask and she does what needs to be done and here we're seeing her waver a little bit and say, you know, please hurry. I, I can't I can't handle this much longer because she's experiencing and seeing everything that Teferi is seeing right now. And it's really taking its toll on her as well. Now, the room with the anchor is currently barricaded from the invading Phyrexians, but the battle has begun. They go back in one last time with one last chance to get this right. So, so they go back to the last battle. And I'm going to quote for you what what this was like for Teferi going back into this moment. A black sky, a rain-lashed beach, ticking and twitching metal ruins still dragging themselves towards their enemies. Two titanic constructs collapsed across each other over the wild-burning old growth. Behind him, oil-slick waves crashed and roared, dragging dead bodies up and down the stained sand. Argoth, the last battle. Moments before the end of the world again. So with this, Teferi is back right where he just was before the flash happened from the bowl. So the Mishra machine had attained the hilltop now and its serpent had loomed high above them. Mishra was grinning, the smile half flesh and half steel. It was the grin of a man triumphant. Mishra was screaming something, a flash at the base of the bowl. So this is exactly what just happened. He literally experiences the exact same thing again and then everything stopped. Yeah, and like, there's there's a moment here where Teferi realizes something where the flash is important. It keeps like there's just this flash to everyone else. It's just a flash. But Teferi instinctively knows that there must be more going on here because there's the flash and then everything else stops. So he uses his awesome planeswalker ability to essentially slow down time into a dead standstill right at that microsecond where the flash happens. And he cuts it into the slowest possible progression that he can so that he can just observe what is truly happening in that microsecond of time before this flash occurs. And he realizes that 
observations alone weren't working. It wasn't giving him the answers that he need. Teferi had to align himself with Urza in time, be there, body and soul. It was a terrible risk. Teferi weighed what he knew. Urza did not die when the Silex detonated. No one knew how he came back or when, but Teferi knew him when he was young. He had studied under him at the Talarian Academy. However, just because Urza lived, it did not mean Teferi, even as a spirit, could withstand the Silex's blast. That artifact was more than just a bomb. The Shard of Twelve Worlds, the Ice Age, every important event over the last four millennia, everything came after this moment. His family came after this moment. If Teferi could have taken a deep breath, he would have. A thought as he acted. Existence is not guaranteed. Teferi stopped holding back time. The multiverse tore open. Everything came after. So we shift a little bit. But I just got goosebumps, by the way, of, of like you reading that. I know. I love that passage. It's so good. So we shift a little bit and we are now in an unknown time. So this is something Teferi has fissured open and he's created almost a new reality. He describes it as if the rest of time was just a river going forward in one direction, a river has its eddies and offshoots. And it's like there are these moments in time that time is distorted and it can even stop or go really, really slow. And this this little offshoot, this little eddy is where Teferi is now. And I'm going to geek out a little bit about the space-time continuum because this is the theory of relativity and how black holes work. So in like I was I was super nerding out at reading this this moment because <laughs> I was like super like, oh, it's like uh, it's just so cool to like think of time in such a in such a metaphorical way. And it's like it, it was really difficult to to read this and place us in time, like a place us in a, an actual place with, you know, with four walls and figure out where we are. Because to be honest, Teferi is now nowhere. He, he is, it is literally a blank void in which time, even time has ceased to exist. It kind of is, it's an interesting moment with, with Urza and Teferi actually begins to talk with Urza. I mean, he, this is the first time that we see Teferi truly talk with his mentor. Like, We've we've seen it referenced many times before that Teferi and Teferi was Urza's pupil, but he actually begins to talk with Urza, this reforming Urza, about the future, about time itself. And and Teferi actually quotes here, some would call you a god. Teferi thought back to his school days. Others would call you a curse. I called you my teacher. Most know you as Planeswalker. And he's he's telling him this because Urza doesn't seem to know what's going on for a minute here. Like, he's like, who am I? What is this bowl that I'm holding? Yeah, like the Silex and, just detonated, right? Like, this is yeah. immediately following or like the moment of the Silex destroying everything. And so they're in this place where time doesn't exist and Urza's literally been torn apart. So I could imagine that Urza's a little confused. And I want to quote here, Urza could not smile anymore. His skull had blackened and crumbled. His shoulders and ribs burned to ash, and yet his voice was strong as when he was whole. So he's able, his, his like essence is there the whole time. It's just his physical form that's kind of like fading in and out and like falling apart and coming back together. Now, Teferi reveals to Urza that he will spend his lifetime fighting the Phyrexians. And this is the first time Urza is hearing that term. He's never heard the word Phyrexian before. He knows like what Mishra turned into, but he didn't have a name for it until now. And Urza begins to reform in this void, being stitched back together, being made 
into a planeswalker. <gasps> so this is the moment that Urza becomes a planeswalker. That's right. Oh, this is so cool. So Teferi goes on to explain like the multiverse and that there are other planes in this multiverse and that the Phyrexians have returned to Teferi's time and that they were in imminent danger. And this is the moment where Teferi is just kind of pleading with Urza on just please tell me how you got the Silex to work. What was it that you did so that we can so that we can save ourselves in the future against these Phyrexians that you have just destroyed? Yeah, and actually, when um, when he mentions the word Phyrexians, Urza says, is that what that thing is called? A whole race of them? Not only are they well-known enough to have a name, but there's an entire race of them. So he's shocked by this. And I think it kind of is over... It's, like, more important to him than the fact that he's turning into a planeswalker right now. Like, he's so focused on on these Phyrexians. And, and I understand. I mean, they just took his brother away from him just moments ago. And it, it's it describes it, you know... it. I, I don't like I'm trying not to read these like incredibly descriptive <laughs> portraits yeah. of like bone and sinew. Um, but safe to say he comes back together and is finally formed into a planeswalker. So then Urza reveals how the Silex works. A powerful person named Hercules Power held the key. They said she could use magic. Urza shook his head. I didn't believe the stories, but I was wrong. Hercules' meditation was real, a method by which one could make themselves a conduit for the soul of the land. Love, pain, joy, fear, emotion, and memory. All of it channeled through a single point, through a single person, who could draw this power through them and project it into the world. This is what I called upon when I used the Silex. I had nothing left, and when I held this in my hands, I poured everything into it. Then it all ended. Urza looked up at Teferi. As soon as I held it, I knew what to do. That's all I can tell you. Teferi understood. With horror, he understood. There was no unknown spell to discover, no secret mechanism by which Urza activated his Silex. Hercules' meditations were well documented. The runic carvings on the Silex had been cast and recast, etched in perfect replica on Sahili's copy. It was all known and understood. They had everything they needed but the person. The trigger to detonate the Silex was not a spell or an artifact, it was a person. So unfortunately, time is up for Teferi. The void breaks and Urza and Teferi are separated and time returns to Dominaria in the wake of the Silex's destruction. And this destruction is just described as silent. There's just nothing after. And we kind of switch momentarily to follow a little bit of Urza, where we jump forward in time by about six years, where Urza awakens Thanos, his most trusted apprentice. And he Thanos had shielded himself in kind of like this box um, against the, the Silex's blow. And Urza kind of gets Thanos up to speed and announces that his brother Mishra is dead. Um, and... He Urza even reflects here and, and kind of almost accepts the, the reality is that uh, Mishra was killed by the Phyrexians even before Urza had killed him. And so yeah. Urza announces to Thanos that he must go away for a while. And by away, I assume he means planes walk away. And he entrusts Thanos to rebuild Dominaria. And that kind of is the... It's like the closing of the circle, right? Which is why Thanos shows up at Kayla's doorstep to, to help Kayla rebuild Pentagon in the very first episode of right. the season. So it's right. like it was it was on Urza's instructions that he help rebuild Dominaria after the, the after the detonation of the Silex. And 
Thanos nodded slowly, and the man with human crystalline eyes stood. You have long been a student, said Urza. Now go be a teacher. As he spoke, Urza began to fade from view. Slowly the color drained from him, leaving only outlines. Then they too faded. Teach them of our triumphs and our mistakes, said a distant voice. And tell Kayla to remember me not as you were, but as you tried to be, finished Hanos. But he was speaking to empty space. Urza had passed from the world into greater worlds that only his crystalline eyes could see. Thanos looked around, but there was no sign of life. He struck inland, hoping to get past the worst of the devastation before he had to travel west. He recognized no familiar landmarks, and he had the feeling that he would not for a long time. Thanos wondered how bad the devastation truly was. And as Thanos walked inland, he was greeted by the first flakes of snow drifting down a chill wind. So in that last scene, Urza did a lot from what we observed in that moment with Teferi. And I'm just going to break it down for you because it was not easy for me to read between the lines. Like, I don't know about you, Harless, but it was like I had to read this section multiple times in order for me to even comprehend what was going on. So um, Because so much is packed into such yeah. a small time frame. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did too. I went over it a couple times. I was like, because it's like bombshell after bombshell. Yeah. And yeah. you're like processing the first one and then the second one comes. And so like, I was like, wait, let me read this a sentence again. later too. It's not, yeah. there's not a lot of fluff in this section for you to be able to truly wrap your brain around what is happening. So the first thing that Urza did is that he killed Mishra, his brother, who was a Phyrexian. A Phyrexian, which means that he could have caused the brother war. It's probably a lot more complicated than just like sibling rivalry to this epic degree. Like it doesn't make sense. For, like it does, right? Like people go to war for less, but it makes more sense when you think about it this way, right? Like did the Phyrexians get to Mishra years and years and years ago and this whole rivalry what was once like just a, a healthy maybe even sibling rivalry became toxic and dark and twisted you know we really we don't know but it, it's very possible yeah it's very possible right? and and to me that I mean it doesn't justify any of the horror that we saw through this season but it makes a little bit more sense than just a bitter rivalry, it, you know, and it's and it kind of ties it back to why Urza would spend a millennia or more fighting the Phyrexians. It was personal. To him. So, yeah, that's that's the first thing that I wanted to highlight that we just discovered. The second thing is that Urza learned about the Phyrexians as a race and they were not destroyed from the Silex that he unleashed. So they survived the Silex and they persisted for the next thousand plus years, you know, and, and we know even more than that because they're back with, with the fairy and the Merry Band of Planeswalkers in our current time, too. Um, the third thing is that we also learned, like Urza learned it first, but we learned through Urza the secret to operating the Silex is kind of just out of sheer will of of, yeah. of of this mage Hercule and and their meditations. So that's the secret to operating the Silex. And then they detonated the Silex, which triggered all of its aftermath. He uh, becomes a planeswalker. Yeah, and then Urza becomes a planeswalker it, in this same scene within a few sentences of each other. And then he also, there was a moment where I quoted before where Urza had crystalline eyes. Um, and this is because he refuses the Dominarian Power Stones. 
he basically restores its innate magical balance of all five colors of mana, which is like key to magic lore. And we won't dive into it, but it's like key to magic lore and how Dominaria works as a plane. Um, won't go out, won't dive into all that nerdy stuff, but that's huge that Urza did that in that moment. So yeah, Urza refuses the Dominarian power stones to restore the magical balance in Dominaria. And he imbues his life spirit into twin crystals, which are seen glowing in his eyes at the end of this episode. Um, so that also happens all in between the lines of this, of this one moment in, in this episode. And finally, we know from here that Urza will continue to fight the Brexians for another thousand years. So Urza at this moment has become a planeswalker and he, be- and he starts to become the, the second half of his legend beyond just the curse of what he was before to, to be one of the most powerful planeswalkers ever. Uh, so <laughs> we, we find out a lot in, in all of this. And just to break it down for you, this all happens in about half a page worth of words. Yeah, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of information. It's a lot that happens. Thanks for breaking that down. That's really helpful. In response uh, to all of this that Teferi has just seen, he's learned a lot too. Most importantly, that the secret to operating the Silex is the magical ability of one person, a powerful mage woman named Herkill, who likely lived long, long ago and was the original creator of the first Silex. Maybe question mark. I wonder. Not sure. It's, it's a good guess. We don't know for sure, but my instinct is telling me maybe. Maybe yeah. Hercule, she was the first creator of the Silex. It's a good guess. Okay, so whew, there was a lot to unpack in that episode. And for someone like us getting caught up on the story after 30 years of lore and history and magic, reading between the lines of what was actually happening between all that poetic pose had me putting my thinking cap on. I had to read through it multiple times to understand, but I'm glad I did because that information is like, like you said, like your recap, it's just so much. It's like, boom, 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 bombshell, 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 bombshell. Oh, me too. It was heavy and beautifully written. There was just tons of context not outright given to us in reading this. And I think the fact that we weren't in any tangible time or space and Teferi was literally testing the boundaries of existential realism, it just added that extra layer of complexity that you had to work yourself through. Yeah, I mean, and I think that really helped us as readers feel what Teferi was feeling. Yes, yes, it was authentic, absolutely. Yeah, there's no way he's sitting there going, like, he doesn't have a recap, right? He's got to sit there and, like, remember this memory and what he said to Kaya. So who knows what he's actually picked up from this versus what we as readers were able to pick up because it happened so fast. And yeah. so I really liked that, the quick uh, quip, the quick pacing of... And so I really liked that the quick pacing really put us into Teferi's shoes. It felt like time travel, for sure. Um, and I think the biggest thing that we can take away, though, is exactly what you said. Teferi knows the secret of the Silex now, but, you know, much good it does. <laughs> How are they supposed to unlock Hercule's magic to get Sahili's version of the Silex to unlock? That's the that's the dilemma that they're in now. And do they even want it to? I mean, we saw what the Silex blasted to Dominaria and Urza. I mean, it ripped him apart. So what would happen if this were to happen again? But do they have a choice? I mean, Elish Norn is going to take over the multiverse if they don't stop her somehow. Uh, I know. It's just, it's dangerous. And both outcomes have terrible consequences. And I can't decide which one's right, you know? I'm right there with you. Okay, so we're going to jump right back into track two, episode five, called Exodus by Reinhardt Suarez.
So what we saw in episode four, for anyone getting caught up to speed or need a quick refresher, we we followed a planeswalker named Elspeth who led the primary defense against Urza's tower. And she had utilized an army of Sahili's mechanisms that she had created for the defense of the tower. And she basically, with the help of Joda, used some pretty cool artifacts from Sahili's making in order to be able to hold off these Phyrexians. There were some pretty cool battle scenes going on last episode. And at the very end, she had basically used one of Jaya's old tricks to burst open a beam of light and fire into the sky. And this was kind of channeled. Joda helped and he kind of helped channel all of this energy that Elspeth even didn't realize that she had inside of her. But it was unleashed to destroy a skyship, a Phyrexian skyship. And they actually managed to fend them, like fend off the Phyrexians for a moment of reprieve. Um, and they actually succeed in the initial invasion wave. They There's actually a moment where they kind of retreat back. But like Harla said at the beginning, uh, Rona comes in at the very end and stabs Joda pretty good. Um, and Joda was not in good shape at the very end. But Elspeth has this substance called Halo that could potentially save him. And so she was going over, she was trying to save Joda and Tezzeret comes in and says, I'm actually going to give you this moment to try and save yourselves um, because Tezzeret is trying to, you know, make things interesting. <laughs> uh, untrustworthy Tezzeret. Yep. Yeah. So for this episode, we follow a character we met only briefly last episode. Her name is Nissa Ravane. She's a green-aligned elf planeswalker who arrived at Urza's Tower in Chandra's company last episode. She's a nature maid, so she harnesses druid-like abilities of the natural world. She's even able to speak to the life force within a plane, which is really cool. It's sort of like how Rin is able to hear the songs of people. Nissa can hear the voices of the natural world. As you can imagine, every plane is different. The voices within it unique, and she can harness it into her command when she uses her magic. The natural world just obeys her whims, which is a really cool power. That is a very cool power. So Nissa can be described as tall and thin, wearing green leather clad clothes with a high collar and cloak, almost always wearing leather boots up to her knees, and she can sometimes be seen with a bright green sash about her waist. Most iconically, she has a gnarled wood staff that stands taller than her head with the tip spiraling into a helix of four intricate arms, and she's got these tattoos on her face that are of her people that are really cool. I love Nissa. She's she's a pretty fantastic planeswalker. And so she is here on Dominaria and she is hearing the voices of the Dominarian plane. And she describes this as Dominaria was not yet broken, but Nyssa got the sense sitting at the meeting room table across from Kaya and Sahili, both haggard and exhausted, that the plane was careening towards its breaking point. So we are minutes away from the battle beginning from that last episode that I just described. So this is the moment where Teferi is about to go back into the temporal anchor for the very first time, and literally minutes away from the Phyrexians being on the doorstep, and Elspeth unleashes that awesomeness that we saw in last episode. And our Planeswalker friends are chatting about current conditions across the multiverse. It seems that the Phyrexians are beginning to invade everywhere, in every plane. There's resistance on New Phyrexia, led by Urabrask and Jace, a fellow Planeswalker. The resistance is made up of Mirans, human denizens of New Phyrexia who have fought against the Phyrexians since the time of Urza, and they all agree that they must buy Teferi time, as much time as possible, before meeting up with Jace and the Miran resistance to take on the Phyrexians. So 
As our merry band of planeswalkers are sitting around this meeting room table, we begin to see some differences between Nissa's approach and Chandra's to the impending war. And remember, Nissa and Chandra are very close. And Nissa values mercy, that not everyone is guilty of the Phyrexians' evil. And Chandra is just too headstrong and wanting all of Phyrexia, period, to suffer and be destroyed. And Chandra only teeters when Nyssa reminds her that Ajani is one of the Phyrexians. Does he deserve to die? This is very Chandra and Nyssa. They care about each other deeply, but they just aren't ever able to get along. And this whole passage ends with the quote, why were things always so difficult between them, no matter how much they cared for each other? So right then the Phyrexian attack begins and Nyssa, with the help of Renan Seven, they kind of fend off the, they help defend the door to where Teferi and Kaya and Sahili are with the temporal anchor. They are kind of like the last line of defense in the tower itself. Um, and they actually kind of, they fend off the first wave of the Phyrexians as, as it tries to infiltrate the tower. And at this point, they see Elspeth's light beam scorch up the sky. And this is the one we saw she and Joda do last episode to destroy the skyship. So now we are pretty much caught up to where we were in that last episode. We're, we're getting there. Like, we're almost there. They begin to hear explosions all around them. And Rin lifts Nyssa up to the top of the tower to see what's going on. And Natalie, I'm going to let you take this one. So... What Nyssa sees once Ren kind of lifts Nyssa high enough that she can see kind of what's going on. They just saw this beam, light beam, attack a skyship and destroy it. From the depths of the Phyrexian forces descending upon them, there is a monstrous Phyrexianized angel that comes. And it is clear that this is their kind of commander. This is the leader of these Phyrexian forces that are attacking the tower. And I will repeat that, Phyrexianized angel. I can only imagine how terrible and powerful yeah. that must be. Like, an angel. So, and, like, I can only think of gameplay here for a minute because angels have a, this ability to fly, right? Which means, like, they can fly over your card unless you have this other ability to block them. On the battlefield in this story, they are equally as terrifying. And having one be Phyrexianized is just, it's wrong in so many ways. Yeah. It just feels icky and like like natalie said this one is just commanding this army right now and i want to read for you this quote about this phyrexianized angel this winged monstrosity was composed of brindled strands of blood red muscle except for its helmet a hulking pyramid of stripped bone resting upon its shoulders Ugh. yeah <laughs> an angel wearing like like a phyrexianized angel wearing like bones like it's it's hard to imagine Ooh. yeah it yeah do we have art for this one? Can we, I, I hope we have art for this one because, oh my gosh, what a cool card. Yeah. So right right as Nyssa is seeing this Phyrexianized angel leading the uh, the forces towards Urza's tower, another wave of Phyrexians descend on them. And Nyssa takes control of the mechanical army down below since Elspeth is temporarily indisposed. I can only hope she's busy saving Joda down there. Right. And and these these uh, mechanisms heed Nissa's call. So they begin to rally on the defense um, in order to defend the tower again. And the Phyrexians this time are super powerful. They overwhelm the army. Um, they're, they're just decimated this time. So Nissa at this point calls upon the Dominarian innateness, like the spirit of Dominaria, to defend itself using her magic. And something's wrong here. It's it's not respect 
responding to her. It feels like it almost recoils from her. And Ren says, and, and Nissa actually calls out to Ren and be like, what's wrong? Can you feel that? And Ren actually says that the ley lines are tangled intentionally, meaning Dominaria's natural forces are resisting Nissa, not heeding to her magic. This has never happened before. To Nissa in that moment, the Phyrexians were the crust of a wave meant to overwhelm not only the tower, but all bastions of life and hope everywhere. From Lorwyn to Innistrad to her beloved Zendikar, with crushing force, with hidden corruption, with soul-destroying despair. So Nyssa recognizes that she has to take down this Phyrexianized, monstrous once-angel that is leading the Phyrexian forces. And with Seven's help, and remember Seven is the, the sapling with Ren, um, Nyssa is flung into the sky. And oh yeah, I love this because Ren says, it will see you coming if you climb. Seven, make her fly. And then in one fluid moment, the now giant-sized Seven launched Nissa skyward, hurling her with such force that the rain stung her face like pinpricks. And so Nissa is flung into the sky and she actually hooks an arm around the Phyrexian angel, like in the sky, no big deal, uh, and impales it with her sword. Superhero moment. Yes, yeah, super superhero moment. And the Phyrexian angel then begins to just start flying like straight up into the sky, like just begins to ascend rapidly into the clouds. And let's remember, this is this is the depths of night. It is storming. It is rainy. It is like you can't see anything in here. It is dark. But Nyssa, she holds tight. She stabs her sword into its wings again and again and again, planting seeds, and then she commands all these seeds to burst and grow at the same time, which consumes this Phyrexianized angel, and they begin to fall out of the sky. But Seven catches her. Gosh, this is such a cool moment. Where, it's such a cool moment. Nissa, I can I could just imagine it so clearly, is just stabbing the, her sword into the wings of this of this Phyrexianized angel and just kind of consumes it like the this the seeds sprout and just kind of do these vines and branches and and begin to grow all over this phyrexianized angel <laughs> all in the middle of the sky during a storm <laughs> yeah no big deal and it, like nissa by the way again like she doesn't fly she doesn't have wings she just allowed herself to be launched into the sky and trusted that she would figure it out from there and yeah. she did which is amazing superhero moment like you said so the phyrexians continue their assault even after all this desperate nissa calls out to the world soul again the very essence of dominaria and natalie can you read this quote for us here on dominaria it was as if a rot had festered deep inside the plane no not a rot hatred born of wounds unhealed and betrayals never rectified. The nature spirits who'd spurned her earlier made their presence known. You are not one of Gaia's children, they said in unison. Gaia. Yes, that was the name the world soul had chosen for itself. Nyssa could sense Gaia close by, watching how she responded to the judgment of her agents who held dominion over Dominaria's untouched wilds. There are invaders upon your plane, Nyssa implored. You must help us defeat them. The Blighted Ones have returned. We know. You are Oathbreakers. How dare you recreate our doom? The Silver One promised to take the Silex away. Now, Nyssa has to compromise with this Gaia being. She can feel that the scars of the Brothers' War are so prominent on this plane, and it just refuses to help, even to save itself, because it's been betrayed and decimated so deeply in the past. Gaia has judged you, the spirits proclaimed. And in that moment, she felt a force reach into her and emerge through her, 
as a moth from a chrysalis. The manna of the plain opened to her. Nissa's arms and legs became the roots of mighty oaks. Her hair became the wind, sharp as thorns. Her body became the ground, teeming with animals, insects, and plants alike. And then her heart. Her heart became the wrath of Gaia, a simmering anger that boiled and frothed like a choleric tide washing over the entire veil. So Nyssa has become wrath, like seriously. What she does is really epic, but it's pretty unsettling. So she summons life back into the would-be destroyers, the fallen Phyrexians, and turns them on the still alive Phyrexians as these strange tree-like mechanisms filled with sap and wood and oil and steel. They're like elemental warriors. And all of Dominari's history, all its pain, its destruction is open to Nyssa and she screams. Only a fraction of a second seemed to have elapsed since she was pulled onto the ground, bone-white appendages reaching down to seize her. But in that moment, everything had changed. She lunged out on instinct, willing the ground underneath her to churn and strike out at her attackers. This time, the elements immediately bent to her command as if they were extensions of her own body. Earthen tendrils burst upward, forcing away the Phyrexians crowding around her. Nyssa came to her feet in time to witness Gaia's protectors pouring down the tower ramparts. They flooded the battlefield, engaging the remaining Phyrexians in a titanic crash. So the Phyrexianized angel that Nyssa had embedded the seedlings into returns. Wings clipped, spine shattered, sword still embedded into its chest. Wrath consumes Nyssa in this moment. She could use these seedlings to torment this Phyrexian angel. She even asks, do your masters experience sensation through you? Now, Bren tries to stop Nyssa from doing this, claiming Nyssa's song is not one of cruelty, but Nyssa clenches her fist and strangles the Phyrexian angel. So it goes to show how powerful Gaia's wrath is here. It is literally altering Nyssa's emotions, like twisting her into its pain. And Dominaria's history is just so jagged and painful and brutal. If you were to feel its core like Nyssa does, every atrocity ever made and done, from what we've witnessed alone in this season, I'm not sure I would have the strength to not be wrathful, to like to resist that. It must be so compelling. It's just that's just for me, right? If I was in Nissa's shoes, I'm I'm not sure I would have done it differently. Yeah, it's definitely I, I can't imagine going through that. And like you said, it's, you know, one person's pain is hard enough to deal with throughout a lifetime, but feeling the wrath of or the pain and the wounds of an entire plane of existence, existence that is is covered with people and their stories who have been affected by this. It, it can't be easy. Now, after this attack wave, Ren and Nyssa return to the tower, and Nahiri is here with Jace up in the room with the temporal anchor, which is still intact, but barely. Now, we find out that the temporal anchor's power stone has imploded, and the anchor is no longer working. This means that Teferi's soul and body are forced apart and trapped in that stasis he was in. Because Kaya saw most of what Teferi did, and she admits it was difficult to follow that interaction with Urza in that place where time was suspended, she seems determined she can activate the Silex. They don't have time to fix the temporal anchor and mend Teferi's separated entities. Now, Nahiri and Jace urge them to leave. The Mirren counterattack is about to begin, and they need everyone on Nuphorexia now. Sahili and the others are hesitant to leave Teferi. If they leave him, he could die. And this is when Joda appears with Elspeth. <gasps> Joda! He's alive? So he was saved by the halo. But it's clear he's still in bad shape. Joda swears that he won't let Teferi die. He'll stay and figure out how to get him back from the anchor while the rest of the group head to Nufyrexia. 
and Bryn also agrees to stay and help Teferi. As they assembled, a few more planeswalkers joined them until the room is swelling with them. I mean, all these new characters, Braska, Luca, Tyvar, Kaido, so many amazing characters we do not have time to dive into right now. But as they appear in other stories, rest assured, we will tell you all about them. We just don't have time for it today. So all these planeswalkers come together and they have a plan. Kaya has the Silex and a haphazard idea on how to activate it. Sahili, Nissa, Jace, Nahiri, Elspeth, they're all gearing up to go to war with Nuphorexia. Joda and Rin will stay behind in Urza's tower to fix the anger and get to ferry back in one piece. And Nissa recollects that this war feels different. She equates it to the War of the Spark. The War of the Spark was child's play in comparison to the enormity in front of them. I don't think things are ever going to be the same again. So we return to Teferi just for a page or two in the wake of that moment with Urza in the place between time. And he's on a beach, but it's kind of an intangible place. Like, imagine like a beach kind of stretching on forever. Like, it, it, there's kind of nothing around him. There's no landmarks. He was whole, but he was not in the temporal anchor. He felt fine, rested, confused, as if he had been woken up from a nap. He looked around, taking in the coast on which he stood. The sea stretched out to the horizon, azure and glittering under the midday sun. So he's definitely on this beach, completely whole, not severed, even though we just saw Teferi's body still trapped in the temporal anchor back in the tower. So I have some questions there. Yeah, we're kind of left with this. If he couldn't connect to Kaya, he couldn't connect to the temporal anchor. If he couldn't connect to the temporal anchor and he couldn't come home. Teferi could only hope that Kaya had gotten what she needed from his conversation with Urza. Did he remember feeling her presence there, or did he imagine that memory? Already, he struggled to remember. Already, he began to forget. The river, subsuming the lake. What had he forgotten? What did he do? He can't remember anything? Uh-oh. Well, as always, Teferi does not give in to panic. He starts walking, and that's how the story of the Brothers War ends. Wait, what? Okay, cliffhanger much? I know. <laughs> so oh. I don't know how Teferi's going to fix himself. He messed up time pretty bad. He He's in one of yeah, these seriously. little lakes or rivers, right? In yeah. time again, it and seems maybe. And also there's like two of him. Like he's here on this beach hole, question mark. He's also back in the temporal anchor where his body is, probably not whole. I'm really wondering what he kind of did to himself with that with that time stuff with Urza. I guess we won't find out in this season. Not this season, yeah. Now, also, Kaya knows how to operate the Silex, she says. Quote, she unquote, could... knows. Yeah, like... Yeah, I, I use quotes around knows because I don't know how she knows how to operate the Silex. Um, I think maybe she knows something we don't. That's that's kind of what I'm thinking, maybe. You know, she does understand, like, ghosts and spirits, which inherently are kind of out of time. Like, they're out of their timeline, right? Maybe maybe she does. It's maybe. feasible. Uh, Joda's alive. Oh, thank goodness. Thank, yes. Like, I was so, so worried about Joda, and I'm so glad that Elspeth was able to save him. If we lost Joda, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah, no, agreed. Joda is is pretty beloved. And uh, the Gatewatch is reunited. Yay! All so these many, great characters. Yes, so many new great characters. I'm sure we're going to meet some of them in the next season. We left on a cliffhanger. I can only assume we're going to follow these planeswalkers to New Phyrexia when they go. And also war on New Phyrexia. Like it sounded like the resistance was about to launch a counterattack on New Phyrexia. I wonder if we get to go there next season. I know. And it's so interesting because 
while this group was figuring out how to operate the Silex, we started back in Dominaria with Karn finding this, trying to find out how to operate the Silex. And we end season two with Kaya saying she knows how to do it. So we'll see what happens in the next one. Thanks so much for following along with us as we journeyed through the story of the Brothers War. We hoped you enjoyed it as much as we did, and we can't wait to return with you in our next season. As always, you can read up on the story at mtgstory.com. Stay tuned for more on the horizon as we dive soon into season three, which follows the story of our next set, Phyrexia. All will be one. All will be one. Until then, have, have a, a magical, magical day. day.